Welcome to Rethink, the Future of Skilled Nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we jump into my conversation with George Hager from Genesis Healthcare, I want to personally invite you to the upcoming Skilled Nursing News Summit in Chicago in June. More than 150 skilled nursing owners, operators, and industry professionals will convene for a morning of networking and discussion on regulatory changes, the M&A landscape, new models pioneered by innovative skilled nursing operators, and our C-suite panel featuring the industry's leading C-suite executives. Visit skillednursingnews.com forward slash events to buy your ticket and attend this exciting event. I'll see you there. My guest today is George Hager, CEO of Genesis Healthcare, one of the nation's largest post-acute and long-term care providers. With about 400 skilled nursing facilities and senior living properties across 29 states, Genesis is a giant in an era where many investors and analysts say bigger isn't necessarily better. I want to find out why George thinks scale can still work in skilled nursing and why his management team remains optimistic in the face of recurring losses and industry headwinds. George, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Oh, you're welcome, Alex. Looking forward to it. All right. So let's just get right into it. One of the things that struck me most, obviously, we report on your guys' earnings calls. And I was really struck by your optimism on the most recent call that you had. You know, Given all the stressors on the industry and on Genesis in particular in the last year, it was kind of surprising for me to hear that kind of upbeat take for 2019 and going forward. So maybe explain a little bit about why you're uh, optimistic about Genesis and the future of the industry in general. Yeah, Alex, uh, no secret that the last three or four years have, have been a very challenging time for our industry. Having been here now at Genesis for 26 years, I've seen a couple of up cycles and, and a couple of down cycles. And I would argue this down cycle has really lasted since 2012, 2013. The down cycle is a function of declining Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements compounded by pressure on occupancy, you know, resulting from the initiatives around healthcare reform, as well as declining demographics. And I would argue is the perfect storm for our industry. What makes me optimistic about the future is what I'm seeing principally on the census side of our business. We have seen declining census period over period, consistent decline for the last four years. And that decline is clearly flattening And in fact, as we said on our earnings call, for the first time in that four-year period, we have seen census levels in the current year higher than they were in the prior year, same period. And that trend reversed itself going from declining census to modestly increasing census in the fourth week of October and has has sustained itself through the date of this call almost mid-December. So, you know, what, what do you think is what do you think is driving that? We actually did just get some NIC data showing in, in the last week showing that census is a little bit on the uptick, not too much and still below nationally. I'm obviously talking about here. It's still a little below where it was this time last year, but quarter to quarter between the second and third quarters, we actually did see a, an uptick in occupancy for the first time in quite a while. You know, what do you think is driving that both at Genesis and in the industry writ large? Yes, I saw that NIC data myself and once again, encouraging and that does reflect what we're seeing uh, at the genesis level as well. Look, I think we're no different than any any other business, and there's got to be, you know, any industry has to find an equilibrium between supply and demand. And as healthcare reform was significantly impacting the demand for post-acute services, at least in the skilled nursing setting, combining that with demographics that were working against us, 
through that 2014 to 2017 period, we actually saw declining 85 to 87 year old population, which is the primary consumer of the service that that we provide, the, the primary age demographic. So not only was the demand side impacted by healthcare reform negatively, it was impacted by demographics as well. And I think what we're starting to see is equilibrium. We've also seen a significant number of beds come out of service as a result of the financial distress in the industry. So we're seeing one stabilizing and modestly increasing demand because the demographics are now beginning to work in our favor with a growing 85 to 87 population, 85 to 87 year old population, as well as stabilized length of stay. And I think the negative impacts of healthcare reform, the very aggressive utilization management by managed care organizations, by convening organizations, has somewhat stabilized. Therefore, that negative pressure has, I would argue, hit its bottom. The demographics are working now very modestly in our favor as opposed to against us. And lastly, there has been a continued decrease in the supply of skilled nursing beds at a national level. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot in that answer that I think we can unpack here. I want to focus on two things. My first one being a question that I always like to ask whenever I have a CEO or any other big picture thinker on is, you know, when does, obviously, you said the demographic wave is kind of trending toward positive for skilled nursing. When do you think we're really going to see that big glut of 85 to 87 year old? Really, when is that demographic wave that everyone says is going to hit the industry? When is that really going to start to drive occupancy at skilled nursing facilities? Is it already starting now? Is that the beginning of the wave? Or are we still maybe a little ways out from really feeling it? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball. I'm sure every investor would like a crystal ball as well. My personal view is we're not going to see a large wave here. I think what we will see, though, is continued small incremental improvements in census. So as we as we continue to go through the you know the post depression era birth birth rates and the post war World War II birth rates and ultimately the baby booming birth rates, which were obviously very significant, you'll begin to see significant increases in the 85 plus population over time and therefore increased demand for, for our service. But I think as I look out the next two or three years, I think the impact will be incremental, but I, I think it'll be steady. I think it, it will not fluctuate wildly. And I think as we saw steady decline over the last three to four years, I think you'll see modest but steady increases you know, over the next two or three years before more of the baby booming birth rates begin to impact you know, demand demand for our service. But I would like to highlight in, in, in the answer to that question that investors in this industry should not underestimate the impact of small marginal increases in census. Our business, especially the routine cost side of the business, which is the majority of our cost, since the majority of our patients are, are, are long-term care patients, is principally a fixed cost. We do not adjust cost if our census levels are down one or down two patients. Likewise, we don't increase our cost significantly if, our, if we have an increase at the center level by one, one or two patients. So the variable or incremental impact of that incremental one 
percentage point of census, up or down, can have a meaningful impact on the financial performance and the cash flow and, and the liquidity of our business and at Genesis. Yeah, th- that is definitely something that I've heard, particularly you know, in discussions about rural facilities as well, where you know, if your census can fluctuate and your fixed costs are what they are, you know, even a couple more heads and beds for a little while will uh, certainly improve that. So that's definitely something that I've heard from uh, other sources as well. Sort of related to that question about what well, you mentioned, the the decreasing supply of skilled nursing beds, I think that was something that Nick has also been very good at tracking and illustrating is that really over since I believe the, the middle of the last decade, the 2000s, uh, the supply of beds has been declining substantially. Is that something that's going to change as the demographic shift in the next couple of years? Or are we really, is this kind of the number of nursing homes that the the country can support, you know, right around 15,000. I think you're going to see continued decline, Alex. There are two constraints in the development and the growth in skilled nursing beds. First and foremost, there is an economic constraint. And that economic constraint is a function of the reimbursement rates and the reimbursement systems. The infrastructure that we operate today is on average approximately 40 years old. The average cost of putting that bed into service was thirty to forty thousand dollars per bed. The average cost to put a modern skilled nursing bed in service today, depending on semi-private occupancy, private occupancy, market, etc., is somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand per bed. Because our Medicare and our Medicaid systems are prospectively based, there is no mechanism to adjust those payment rates for the current cost to develop and bring online a new skilled nursing bed. That's why you have seen most of the new beds that have been brought online, unless they are pure replacement center, most of the beds being brought online are not duly certified beds. They're beds being brought on that either are only Medicare certified Or they would be what I call hybrid facilities that have some number of skilled beds and some number of of AL beds, but they are not Medicaid certified because you cannot operate a skilled nursing bed with financial feasibility and sustainability with 70%, 60% Medicaid census when the building costs $150,000 to $200,000 a bed to bring out of the ground just financially not feasible. So until the funding of this industry is fixed, and that is the problem. The problem isn't operations. The problem really isn't census. The problem is the inadequacy of the Medicaid funding for long-term care in this country. Until that is fixed, you will not see the development of duly certified skilled nursing beds. What's it going to take to get that fixed? Is is it really going to take, you know, I've heard there's been discussions from a lot of prominent thinkers, you know, some of the REITs, some of the analysts that say it's really going to take really a, a wave of negative headlines in terms of older folks not able to get long-term care for the government to do anything about it. Do you think there's anything that can be done about this in the next five to 10 years to meet the demand that everyone seems to know is coming? Well, I think what needs to be done, and I've had limited conversations in Washington myself, I think that there should be a benefit under the Medicare program 
for those of us who funded into the program for our entire working lives, for those of us that are subject to chronic disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, to name, to name two. The services that a Medicare beneficiary requires in mid-stage to late-stage Alzheimer's are not covered by the Medicare program. So the Medicare pro- program will cover acute hospitalization and physician cost, but it will not cover the cost of chronic care needed by those patients that are suffering from diseases like Alzheimer's. And I think if you look at that from a historical perspective, when the Medicare laws and Medicaid laws were passed in the 60s, and the average life expectancy of an American citizen was in the 60s, we didn't see the prevalence of chronic disease that required the type of care that a growing number of our elders need today. It was never thought of to be part of the benefit structure of the Medicare program. Now, the burden of true long-term care for individuals, we're not talking about individuals that are just suffering from some limitations of certain activities of daily living, and they can't live independently in their home anymore. We're talking about very, very sick people with developing and deteriorating disease states from chronic illness that takes that take years and years for them to ultimately run their course, those patients need real healthcare service, and those services are not covered by the Medicare program today. And there needs to be a benefit under the Medicare program for chronic care. So this is something that should be coming from the federal level and not Medicaid, which is you know obviously a mix of, that it is federal, but it's mostly dictated by the states. Yeah, this is a healthcare problem. It's not, understand that, you know, the Medicaid systems are for the indigent, people that don't have any money. Even though over 70% of our patients today in our beds are now covered by the state Medicaid systems, virtually none of those people were admitted to our centers under the Medicaid program. They had savings. They had financial independence. But because of a chronic disease that was not covered by the Medicare program, they were forced to spend through their assets. And once they spent into poverty, then and only then does our government, and it's not our federal government, it's our state government, come in and fund their needs. Not healthcare needs, but they're funding because they now are impoverished. It is a system that is seriously broken and we need it fixed and you know your guess is as good as mine over the next five or ten years whether we will see any political and that's what we need we need political real strength behind you know the needs of the aging and elder population in this country yeah i know that that is something that you know before i started covering this beat about two years ago i obviously I had, you know, a dimmer understanding of how this worked. And I always naturally assumed that Medicare covered nursing home stays for as long as you needed. And then when I started digging into the reporting and learning about the industry, it shocked me. And I I tell people my age, you know, I'm admittedly far away from uh, qualifying for Medicare myself. But I tell people my age, especially as they start to have parents who get older and they have parents who start to think about their long term needs. And it, it, it always blows their mind. But I say, oh, you know, it's Medicaid. If you have to stay in a nursing home longer than 100 days, you have to go on Medicaid or pay for it yourself. And 
it always seems to shock people because it's, it's still not very widely understood, at least among you know, the general population who aren't working in this industry every day. No question. And you only get those 100 days if you actually meet the definition of someone who required skilled services you know, for that full 100-day period. So it's not an automatic 100 days, even at that. Exactly. I want to switch gears a little bit here and get on another topic that has been kind of a recurring theme in my time covering this industry. There seems to be a general trend, a lot of investors, a lot of REITs, a lot of private equity guys, they're looking at the regional nimble player, skilled nursing player as the companies that they want to back. There's been obviously a lot of high profile bankruptcies in the last year of some of the bigger players in the space. And you happen to lead one of the bigger post-acute and long-term care companies in the uh, industry. So I'm kind of curious to get your take on that. You know, why does scale still have benefits or, you know, what kind of benefits does the scale of a company like Genesis have over the more regional players that seem to be kind of in vogue right now in the industry? Yeah, Alex, that, that, that's a question that, you know, has been written about quite a bit. One of my friends has a very strong view on that, who uh, I used to lease some properties from based out in California. And, and I would say this to, to that question. I think that first, there's no question that healthcare is a local business. So the hospital referral source, the reputation of a skilled nursing center, even the payers that, that, are, that are looking for high quality providers, skilled nursing care providers in the market, they're looking for those providers that have strong local market reputations. And a hospital in Southern California could care less about the performance of the reputation of Genesis Healthcare in Maryland, quite frankly. So I do think that healthcare must be looked at and is a, a local business. So my argument with the discussion of local, regional, nimble versus national is one better than the other. I would argue, with a few exceptions, which I'll give you, that there, there are no disadvantages of having the scale that we have, at least from an operating perspective. Because when you look at the way Genesis has always operated this business, we operate the business on a regional basis. We operate our business with four regional offices and two satellite offices. Those satellite offices and regional offices are no different than the corporate office of a regional operator. We fully staff those regional and satellite offices with all the support infrastructure we need, clinical, environmental, operational, physical plant, reimbursement. We have the wherewithal in our regional and satellite offices to deliver and oversee and support the facilities in our regional markets just as well as any small regional operator. So I'm not saying that the regional operator, you know, its size makes it more nimble and better able to operate in, in, in given markets because to your comment about bankruptcies, and we can go down and name them some that I don't want to name, but there are a lot of bankruptcies out there that are regional operators that could not pay their lease payments. I would argue that for the most part, not in every case, most of the bankruptcies are a function of 
very, very poor and aggressive capital structures where too much leverage was deployed and could not be covered by the cash flow capability of those centers. So I think poor capital structure over leverage was the driving force in bankruptcy, not operating performance. My guess is you haven't seen anyone really lay out on a market-by-market basis, and I've done some of this myself, the operating performance from a financial perspective and from a clinical perspective of the regional operator versus the national operator. There's no question there's some very, very good regional operators. There's also some very, very poor regional operators. I would say the negatives to my scale are not operational. They're not nimbleness in the local market. The negatives of my scale are a function of my scale. Genesis Healthcare, with 50,000 beds, New York Stock Exchange company, has a very large target on its back. There's, there's no question that there are functions and industries out there that target the skilled nursing industry. And if you're going to target a company for litigation, you're going to target the highest profile, largest company with the deepest pocket and the largest insurance policies. There's also the effect of, because I talk with a lot of people who are outside the skilled nursing industry all the time, investors who call us up and ask us to kind of give them uh, the lay of the land, so to speak. And part of it is there aren't a lot of publicly traded companies that operate in the space, whether it's a REIT or an operator like you. So the publicly available information that's out there is kind of magnified in importance. And and I, I know that just from the amount of questions we field all the time from people saying, what about this operator? What about that operator? We can't see their finances just because there are really so few publicly traded companies in the space. So when I look at some of, some of the facilities we've sold and look at some of the data of the operators that take, you know, have taken over those centers, they don't operate them any better. The census isn't any better. What's better is principally they've lowered the insurance cost because they've structured those acquisitions to limit the attractiveness of their operations to the plaintiff's bar and the class action bar that are more likely to to focus on the larger operators with the, with the deeper pockets. So my negative is, negative is my scale and what I attract. It's not my ability to operate. I would say the, the advantages of my scale, though, well outweigh the negatives of my scale. You know, there's not an operator, there's not a regional operator that could effectively build a physician business that allows the Genesis facilities to employ its own physicians and nurse practitioners and elevate the overall level of clinical skill available to the patients in our centers. We're able to do that because of our scale. No regional operator could participate in the bundled payment program and put 32 centers in the bundled payment program as we did. We were able to do that because of our scale. No operator has been able to nationally create a post-acute care-sponsored accountable care organization. There's only one that exists, and that's the Genesis Healthcare ACO because of our scale. PCC, point-click care, the largest operating system in the industry. Genesis effectively identified PCC in 2004 as our primary operating system. PCC was not even on the map at that point. 
We invested in PCC because there was no effective operating system supporting this industry. We in Manor Care helped build Point Click Care to what it is today that now supports the entire industry. Those are the advantages of scale. Our voice in Washington, our voice in the state capitals, I also think is helped by you know the scale of a high quality operator like Genesis. So I would, as you can tell by my emotion, significantly disagree with those that say the regional operator in every case, just because they're smaller or better. There are very good small operators. There are very, very good national and scaled operators. I'd point you to one stat to just demonstrate our outcomes. The five-star system, which is a challenging system, we operate well over 400-plus centers and over 550,000 beds in 26 states. The one five-star metric that is most controllable are your quality outcomes. The Genesis five-star metric for our quality outcomes on a consolidated basis is over four stars. We exceed the national average. And yes, can someone point to a regional operator that might be 4.2 or 4.3 stars in their 20 or 25 buildings? Yes. But on a national basis, I will put our outcomes, our patient outcomes, our five-star results, our staffing levels against anyone, against anyone. So this actually rolls rolls right into what I wanted to ask you about, too, as kind of your unique perspective on the marketplace, which is PDPM and the effects of how that is going to play out over the next year or so. Because Genesis has both the rehab services arm and the institutional skilled nursing arm, I'm kind of curious to get your take on what it means for therapy and skilled nursing writ large. You know, is this are we going to see more providers bring their therapy in-house? Are we going to see them go with third-party providers more? Where are the opportunities and where are the challenges here? Yeah, that's a great question. We've debated that a lot ourselves because we obviously are the biggest skilled nursing operator in the country. We're also the biggest contract therapy provider in the country as well. And so we are impacted by uh, obviously PDPM differently with those different parts of, of, of our business model. I'd say first and foremost, The message that we are preaching at Genesis is the patient and the needs of the patient in our center and our contract sites is no different on October 1st than they are than they are on September 30th of 2019. First and foremost, we will treat and care for the patient and meet the needs of that patient and hopefully continue to improve outcome for the patients that we serve. Now, part of the triple aim in healthcare reform is to achieve better outcomes at lower cost. I think one of the opportunities without question is under under the PDPM system, I would say unlike rug, the rug system, which was very much therapy centric, the PDPM system looks at the overall needs of, of the patient in our setting. I think that is a very positive and constructive change in, in, in the reimbursement system. So that fundamental shift from therapy-centric to comprehensive needs of the patient is the most important part of the change. But as it relates to the economics for, for the industry, what, what 
PDPM does allow for our more cost-effective modalities, such as group concurrent therapy, which theoretically can drive the cost of providing therapy services down with no negative outcome on the patient. So I do think that the industry will have, the skilled nursing industry will have opportunities uh, to be more cost-effective, hopefully redeploy some of those efficiencies back into the care delivery model for their patients, achieving better outcomes, lower cost. And if I had to, you know, guess right now as to the impact, I think generally speaking, PDPM, if it is truly revenue neutral to the industry, should have some positive impact on the financial performance of the skilled nursing industry, which the skilled nursing industry desperately needs. As far as your question of insource and outsource, I don't think there is any necessarily any stronger or weaker motivation to the insource or outsource question. And right now, as we've met with our customers on the therapy side, I don't see any significant change in thought process as we sit here today regarding the insource versus outsource question. Got it. Looks like we're hitting the end of our time here. So I just wanted to end with one last question about PDPM. How long do you think it's going to take to really sort out the positives and the negatives? Obviously, we're still a little while away, and the implementation is on October 1st of uh, 2019. But is it going to be immediate? Is it going to take a year? Is it going to take two years? Especially because we all know CMS is going to be watching those therapy levels and those reimbursement levels closely to determine if there are any adverse effects on residents as providers adapt to the changes. How long do you think are we going to have to wait for a verdict on PDPM? You know, the magnitude of the changes from PDPM, I don't think are completely appreciated. The whole assessment and coding process for the patient is changing dramatically, changing from a rug system that we've been operating uh, under since 1998, 20 years, to really an assessment that's based more on hospital, you know, type assessment, you know, ICD-9 and ICD-10 coding. And so we have a tremendous you know, educational responsibility here to to make sure that we implement PDPM effectively. So a lot of education and a lot of training to understand and, you know, modify systems and process to adopt the new fundamentals of, of, a, of patient assessment embedded in PDPM. So one, I think the industry will take some period of, to- of time as it did under the RUG system, you know, it's as much as two years to fully I think, implement and become become comfortable with, with all of the changes. And I think you're right. I think, you know, CMS will continue to monitor, you know, the impact of PDPM. It's expected to be revenue neutral. All of the work we've done in trying to build, you know, a PDPM grouper and, and look at, you know, our patient cases in the rug system and, and grouping them into PDPM, our very preliminary assessment is that it looks like it will be revenue neutral or budget neutral to the government. And as I said, we're preaching, you know, outcomes, sustainability and improvement of outcomes. And I would be surprised if we see from industry perspective, you know, any negative patient outcomes as a result of PDPM. All right. Got it. Well, time will tell. George, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, Good luck to you and Genesis uh, going forward as we deal with the, the big changes. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for including us in your program. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.